Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Um, it's not every day that a 99-year-old company goes bankrupt. But that's what happened in the trucking business. Yellow Corp, or I'm going to use Yellow Freight. That's how I know this company. Used to cover the stock back in the 80s, back in the day when I was a Payne Weber. Y-E-L-L is your ticker. Our good friends at Yellow Freight. Ugh, tough going at it. Lee Klaskow joins us here. He's a sector head and senior analyst. He covers all the freight, transportation, all the logistics, that supply chain. We blamed it on him in the last couple of years. Uh, he's with Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Lee, Yellow Freight's been out there for literally 99 years. What happened? Yeah, well, oh, this bankruptcy is, is decades in the making, at least 25 years when they uh, acquired After my time. Come on. <laughs> when they acquired, acquired uh, Roadway, I think it was back in uh, 2003. And uh, since then, you know, they just really haven't been able to uh, integrate all these networks that they've acquired. You know, usually when you do an acquisition, one plus one should at least equal three. Uh, this was one plus one equaled maybe one and a half. Yep. Uh, and, and a lot of that had to do with, uh, you know, the fact that uh, the, the company is a Teamster unionized uh, employer, so they were. Is that unusual in the trucking biz? Today it is, okay. and it's it's even more unusual now that one of the largest ones is going under. Yep. Okay. You know, UPS was a Teamster uh, LTL player, and they sold their business to TFI. It was a, a very highly unprofitable business, of very thin margins, um, and you know they're they're competing against companies that don't have work rules, uh, stringent work rules like some unions do, uh, and so they're just able to be more flexible. And more more nimble. Um, you know, it's not to say that uh, it, it couldn't become a, a better trucking company. And again, there's blame to be spread uh, across the board, whether it's uh, management uh, early in 2003, uh, or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the fact that uh, some, some, some of the things that the union did recently, uh, like threatening to go on strike, kind of accelerated uh, this bankruptcy. Again, like, you know, 20 plus years in the making. So is this the case of a union putting itself out of a job? You know, I don't want to put the blame squarely on the union. I think, like I said, I think there's 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 a blame to, to, to go around. But, you know, they the, the company said that they were going to hold off on a $50 million pension payment. And the union said, well, if you do that, you know, we're going to strike. And then the problem is with an LTL, a less than truckload carrier, it's kind of like a run on the bank. Shippers will move away 
from you. And then once that happens, you have a deleveraging effect of your network. That means your business becomes less and less profitable. And then as more people move away because they're scared that their freight might be stuck in your system, um, it, it, just, it just becomes a snowballing effect. Uh, and that's why usually when there's bankruptcy in the LTL industry, uh, it's always always a liquidation, never a restructuring. I was going to ask. So there's no ongoing concern. It's not like these truckers are going to still have jobs, just have you know an executor running the company. No, the, 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 there's obviously you know there's I guess there's some good news. Some of these uh, folks are obviously going to rebound. You know, XPO is hiring, FedEx Freight is hiring. Uh, there's a lot of other companies that are going to be hiring and looking for people. But not giving them union jobs and benefits. No. But the interesting thing, the uh, the yellow employees actually make less than the non-union uh, companies just because what? of... Uh, the market. Yeah. From a, from a pay standpoint, maybe not from an all-in benefit standpoint, from a pay standpoint. They, so they make, make a little less, but maybe they have higher benefits and air conditioning in the cab. Right. That was one of the shocking things to me about the UPS. And I, oh, ever since, never do ever since then, I've been looking at UPS delivery guys all over the place, and they are sweating bullets. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a hot job. They work hard. All right, let's step back and take a look at the trucking business in the United States. Kind of where are we these days, again, we came through the pandemic. There were definitely some supply chain issues that just went all the way back. You know it from the, the ships until it gets to the to the warehouse. You know how that works. Talk to us about how the trucking industry is these days. Yeah, so there's there's two types of trucking that I look at. I look at the truckload industry, and those are companies like Knight Swift, Schneider. You probably see all those trucks on the road. Then you have the LTL carriers, uh, the Yellow, XPO, SIA. Uh, FedEx Freight, Arc Best. LTL, uh, by the way, just sorry to interrupt because I don't know as much about this as you guys, you guys do. LTL just means they're going to go and pick up your load and ship only truck only your load, even if it doesn't fill up their hauler. Right. It's usually, I mean, how most of the LTL carriers like it. Which they is like, less than truckload. Less than truckload. Yeah, sorry. Right. Yes. Less than truckload. Uh, they like it on pallets. So you can get a forklift in, pull it out, and then go across the dock, put it in another truck, and then keep on doing that. Uh, in the olden days, you know, I, I actually, a long, long, long time ago, I worked at an LTL carrier unloading and loading trucks in the summer. Graveyard shift, hardest job I ever had in my life. <laughs> this job's a little easier. Uh, and that was very hot as well. Uh, and er nothing was palletized. You had to take everything off the truck. Uh, some of yellow stuff, a lot of the yellow freight, I mean, not to keep on going back to right. yellow, because like, you know, a lot of the carriers that are going to be left, they're going to be going after some of this business, but not all of this business is good freight. Some of it is not palletized, so it's more expensive to move. A lot of it might have high cargo claims, so it could be glass, it could be um, TVs, things that tend to break when you move them around. Um, so, you know, they have about 6.8% of the shipments in, in, in the U.S. Um, XPO, FedEx Freight, the other ones, they're not going to want all 6.8% of that. So it's going to be interesting to see where that kind of the, the not so great freight ends up going. Uh, but it'll be a real great opportunity for the carriers that are left because they're going to probably have good freight at good rates at good margin. And it should be really good incremental margins for uh, the LTL carriers. In trucker lingo, could you explain to Matt what reefer means? I know what uh, reefer means. Yeah. No, That's for tr the trucking industry, it has a specific. It's different. It's, it's different. A temperature controlled. So food, uh, ah, pharmaceuticals, refrigerated. refrigerated. I just wanted to get that out. A yeah. reefer truck. I guess. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Lee, your company's it's not the same as the one in Cheech and Chong up in smoke. Yeah. Or at the fish show that you the fish shows <laughs> that you tend to go to. <laughs> so all right, Lee, your companies, the truckers, the railroads, uh, the, the global uh, ocean shippers. 
I can't think of an industry that's got a better look on the economy than, than those types of companies. What are those companies saying about their economic outlook? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, we, we actually just spoke to one of our companies this morning. We, we, uh, we spoke with DHL, and, and they were telling us that, you know, they're not expecting much of a, a peak season this year. Really? Uh, and if they do see it, they'll probably see it in, in the air freight on their forwarding business versus their ocean business. A lot of the other carriers, like Knight Swift, you know, they're all talking about you're seeing the destocking happen. So destocking, that's just retailers just bringing down their inventories. Exactly. Okay. And they're not seeing the restocking ah, okay. where they're filling up the inventories. So we're, we're at a situation where, A, the consumer is obviously pretty resilient, uh, but we're just not seeing the normal seasonal patterns yet. We're pretty optimistic. We're, we're, I guess we're probably a little more bullish. You know, we think we're going to see um, not a peak peak season, but we are going to see an incremental increase in, in, in demand. Uh, and that's going to have a really positive impact uh, on the truckload industry. Um, we, we've been calling uh, a bottom for that industry for quite some time on the rate side, and so far it's been playing out. Uh, we think that as we go into the fourth quarter, uh, they're going to slowly increase. Now, a lot of the trucking companies that we cover, they don't play in the spot market, but it's kind of like this. It, it tells you where contract rates are going to be six to nine months out. And so what we're looking closely at the spot market, we look at it every week, try to figure out where it's going. You know, we think that's going to set up next year a pretty good for the truckload industry for contracts. This year, contract rates are down anywhere between mid to high single digits. Um, um, some companies are even seeing them down low double digits. Um, but, you know, they can't come down much more because they've had all the inflationary pressures that every other company has. You know, they're paying their people more. Equipment costs more. Insurance costs more. Um, so, you know, eventually people are, the larger companies are just going to say, you know, we'd rather not take your freight because it just doesn't make sense for us. How about if I own a truck and it's parked in my backyard, a big, you know, 18-wheeler, can I get business anytime I want? Can I work anytime I want? You Is can't, that kind you, of demand? You, 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 can't, you can because there's an app for that. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I mean, everyone and their mother has an app. Every large trucking company has an app. You have the Uber Freights of the world. You have load boards like Truck Stop or DAT. So all you need is a smartphone and a truck and a CDL, and you can move freight. The problem is you might be moving freight at a loss, and that's what a lot of truckers are dealing with now. So as time goes on, some of the truckers, or we'll call them high uh, high high cost truckers that are that have kind of came into the market at the peak and their equipment's more expensive and their insurance is more expensive and they thought they were going to get these great rates that they were getting during the pandemic now that rates are down considerably you know 20 some odd percent from last year you know they're not making money and eventually you can only operate for cash flow for so long until you're just like, I'm going to go do something right. else. And a lot of truckers, you know, the owner operators come in and out of this business. You know, they might work, they might, they might drive their truck as yep. a long haul trucker, or they might do construction or they might work in warehousing. Um, so it's, it's yeah, my neighbor in North Carolina had his 18 wheeler parked, beautiful truck yeah. parked in next to his little house in Durham, North Carolina. He's like, I feel like working for the next three or four weeks. And he just go out. And do it. So I don't know if that's my dream, Paul. That's my yeah. dream, as you know. <laughs> exactly. All right, Lee Glasgow, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Lee does all the transportation stuff. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. 
Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. All right, we got the S&P up. Let's call it 18% year to date. Uh, the tech-heavy NASDAQ is up over 30%. I mean... You know, the back half of August and September are some of the best times of the Jersey Shore. I think I'm just packing it in. I'm done. And I'm just going to go down the shore because I've got a great first half. I don't need to do any more. But let's see what the professionals are out there doing. David Katz, president and CIO at Matrix Asset Management uh, or Advisors, Matrix Asset Advisors. David, I mean, boy, that's a heck of a first seven months here in this market. Is there anything left in this market? We do think there's uh, still a, a batch more left, but we think that it's going to come from different places. If you look at the first five months of the year, the uh, largest seven technology companies were up over 65%. The rest of the market was flat. Since that time, the broader market's been doing better. There's been a lot of catch up. We think when you look for the balance of the year, you're going to continue to have catch up with things that have not done as well. In the first seven months of the year, we think they will start to rally. And we think the things that did great can still do okay but uh, we would agree with you. There's there's not going to be a repeat of that. So are you not concerned that we're going to have a recession? We just talked to Bloomberg Economics, Anna Wong. She says October is now her prediction for um, the beginning. And she says it's going to start slow and they get really steep. Well, we don't think it's going to be steep. We think that there's it's even money, whether we have a, a short, shallow, modest recession or a soft landing. Um, we, we think the economy has been unbelievably resilient, but you have to offset that with the fact that the Fed has been increasing rates for the last year and a half. We think that the Fed is close to an end, but a lot of the things that they did have lagging impact. So we think you could have a modest recession, but we think a modest recession or a soft landing would be bullish for stocks. Deep recession, which we don't expect, would be bearish for stocks. All right. So I'm just looking uh, at some of your picks. Um, because interesting, because again, we've talked about it before. A lot of the uh, big cap uh, tech names have really led the market here. If I wanted to broaden it out, Medtronic is one of your names, uh, you know, a healthcare device company. Talk to us about Medtronic. So healthcare did very well on a relative basis in 2022 and has been miserable in 2023. Again, we think there's going to be a rotation and catch up. In terms of Medtronic, the procedures for cardiovascular are finally starting to get better. 
had United Healthcare say that more people are, are going to the hospitals for these procedures. Medtronic has had a number of disappointing quarters. They set the bar particularly low this year. We think this quarter, for the first time in, in the last four to six, they're going to have good numbers, and there's a reasonable chance that they beat and can raise expectations. You're getting it at a pretty reasonable price and a very nice dividend yield. We think if you have a 12-month time horizon, you easily have 20 to 25% of the upside. Why do you think these stocks haven't done better, though? Well, again, certain stocks did well last year, and there was a rotation. The things that did well last year have slowed down this year and vice versa. Uh, financials also did particularly poorly this year. The drug companies had been doing poorly up to last week, and then you had companies like AbbVie, Amgen, uh, that had very good numbers, and the stock really spiked on that. So we think it's going to spread out. So we don't think that you want to question that they haven't done well in terms of, hey, I'm not going to buy them. They haven't done well. And we think you want to look at them as what's going to be the next thing that rallies. And we think a lot of those drug companies and med tech companies are going to start to do uh, better because their fundamentals are strong, but the stock prices haven't moved yet. Hey, David, I want to I can't remember the last time on this show we ever talked about it, uh, a electric power company, utility company. But you've got American Electric Power, AEP, based in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, that's on your list. What's the play on the electric business? And the stock's down 14% year to date. Yep. So that, that's exactly it. So they're a very well-run company. We like management. They're going to grow the earnings from 5 to 7 8%. They're going to grow the dividend from 5 to 7 8%. It's at 15 and a half times earnings. So it's at the lower end of its valuation range. The yield is 4%. So if you go back to your last guest that was looking for a recession, uh, these are the type, that's the type of business you want to own in an economic slowdown or a recession. And we just think you want to balance your portfolio. We think the economy is going to be okay, but if it's not, AEP is going to be a very good place to be. Uh, we think that they haven't done anything. The stock's down. It shouldn't be. So we're not looking for a home run here, but you could get a 4% yield and a 15 to 20% gain over the next 12 months. So again, conservative place, balance out your portfolio. In Columbus, Ohio. And in a great place. Yes. Yeah. If you need to do channel checks, I'm your man. Um, in terms of screening, I see air products and chemicals as well. So they uh, sell oxygen, which we need, sure. you know, nitrogen, argon, helium, stuff like that. <laughs> How do you pick these companies, David? How do you screen for so, these? So we have eight valuation models that look at a company's earnings and dividends and return on equity. And we try to value what the business is worth and then buy it at a discount. We also focus on dividends, sustainability of dividends. And in terms of air products, they are really consistent earnings grow over time. They've grown the dividend at north in 10 to 12%. The expectation is that that's gonna continue. The stock did well last year, has not done a whole lot this year. But we think what's very interesting here is it's a green energy play uh, but you're not paying too much for it, and you're getting a good yield while you're waiting. David, how concerned are you about this Federal Reserve? We're going to get a bunch of economic data this week, and the market seems to be saying maybe one more rate increase or maybe even just hold steady. How concerned are you about our Federal Reserve? Well, we think the Federal Reserve has overshot in terms of raising rates, so we're a little bit fearful that they continue to do that. You did have one Fed governor say that uh, she thinks there could be additional uh, multiple raises this year. So that's a worry. We don't think they have to. We think inflation is definitely breaking lower. Your, your last guest just talked about inflation uh, going lower. Uh, if you look at this quarter's earnings season, we agree most companies are talking about not having issues with supply anymore, logistics, shipping, all prices coming down. Uh, so we think the Federal Reserve doesn't have to increase more. 
they could do one. It's either one or done or none and done. Uh, and, and if that's the case uh, and the economy holds in okay, which we think it will, stock should be a pretty good place to be. If we're wrong and the Federal Reserve raises four more times, that's problematic. We that's don't think that happens. That's a problem for a lot of people there. <laughs> All right, David, thank you so much. We appreciate it. As always, David Katz, he's the president and chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. Still bullish on this market, even after the run we've had in the S&P, and particularly in the NASDAQ and NASDAQ 100. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I want to talk... Uh, Goldman Sachs, Jeff Curry. Do we have Shri? I mean, is he around? I mean, yeah, God forbid. He I heard he was going to be in studio. And the reason we like to talk to this guy because he is all over the Goldman Sachs beat. So two questions about Jeff Curry. He's only one person. He's a commodity strategist. Okay, he's not a key man risk in my opinion. But high-profile guy. I'd like to know two things, neither of which I think we know. A, why did he leave? And B, where is he going? So, yes, you're right. He's not a key man risk, but... Uh Jeff Curry is a name that the Bloomberg uh, listeners, the Bloomberg readers certainly know yep. really well. He has been the face of commodities research at Goldman Sachs for nearly 30 years now. And he truly has crafted a brand for himself as one of the most recognizable commodities analysts out there. He makes bold calls. He, he describes it in an entertaining, in a very easy to understand manner, and he has won his followers. He may not always have been right. Remember, right now he's called for another super cycle in commodities mm. that has not quite panned out. But agree with him or not, everyone in the market will tell you that he is someone you must at least pay attention to. That's Jeff Curry. Of course, there is the broader Goldman Sachs theme that we always wonder about. Another very recognizable name brand leaving Goldman Sachs, the sixth partner in the last couple of weeks. I would argue that uh, it's, uh, it's a little different from the sort of uh, tug of war you've seen in the other parts of Goldman where there are bigger issues over strategy and some of the reorganizations that they've done that has led to a flow of talent. Uh, I can't really attribute that being the chief reason for Jeff Curry in any way that we understand. And look, it doesn't look like he's looking to take any other job immediately. He's going to spend some time with family. He has two young kids. He's only 56 years old. I was about to say that, he, but he's still only 56 years old. So it would be hard to bet against a second act. Here's a quote I like. Um, and is this in, yeah, it's in your story, Shri. You got it from uh, Colleen Foster, who's like a senior salesperson in commodities. And this is like the best anybody could say about an analyst, i.e. there's never a time I couldn't get a meeting with a CEO, an oil minister, or a hedge fund founder if Jeff Curry was with me. That's the, the sway this guy had in he the He gets world. you in the door. Gets I actually had a door. prominent dream about Jeff Curry. Remember? Right, that's a little disturbing. Last year? That is disturbing. Uh, <laughs> he, no, we were sitting at a diner and he was selling me on the commodity super cycle. And he was like, listen, Europe hasn't gone into the recession that we thought it was going to. China's about to come roaring back, you know, and uh, U.S. driving season is going to kick. A lot of that stuff, um, Europe doesn't look great anymore. China hasn't come roaring back. And uh, the U.S., we're just not using as much gas. There's not as much demand as they but thought. Okay, let's not, let's not leave Matt hanging here. <laughs> yes, you knew Jeff Curry for his commodity research, and maybe that was something he did on the side. But what was he more famous for, Matt? He helped co-produce a documentary ah, on the, the British rock band The Kings trying to bring them back together. 
That yep. is pretty cool. Hey, just stepping away from Goldman, I don't think there's any, to me, any turnover that we're seeing in Goldman or anywhere else on the street is any different than any past cycles to me. Do you sense that there's anything unusual going on in turnover, or is this just business as usual? No, I mean, there's certainly a different story at Goldman Sachs. Uh, yes, maybe there's not much in terms of the quantity, in terms of the number of people who are leaving, but the type of people who are leaving. Some of these people who were handpicked for a bigger and greater role at Goldman Sachs, for them to be leaving so soon after they've been on the, on the up. And, you know, Goldman's always had an up or out culture, but, but, the, but the weird part is some of these people were on the up. You know, either they were kneecapped or they didn't sort of fit in the new plans. They have been getting frustrated and leaving. So it's the type of names that are leaving okay. the building that have caught our attention more than the number of people leaving 200 West Street. So we have no idea what Curry's going to do then later. Is anyone speculating? I, like I said, I mean, if he, he seems to have told confidence that at, for the moment he wants to spend some time with family. But again, if you've been in the game for so long, the itch to get back there will overcome your desire to just relax on the beach. So I will be very surprised if a year later you don't see Jeff Curry pop up somewhere else again. David Solomon, just characterize kind of the, the feeling on the street about David Solomon these days. I mean, the I would argue that Goldman's doing well, and I would also argue that the foray into commercial banking wasn't his call. That's a blank fine call. He inherited. He committed hard, though. Blank fine dated consumer bank, the consumer business, and and Solomon married it. And is that is that accurate? That is accurate. Okay, look, so he does in fact bear. Look, they had a banking charter of two, after two thousand eight, so it made sense for them to do something as basic as what they were doing, offer okay. some deposits, make out some loans. But then there was this desire to push in and make something bigger. And they will always tell you such a big deal has been made about consumer. It was just three percent of revenues. Yes, it was three percent of revenues, but you racked up losses at a time when you really don't didn't want those losses. Right when the cycle was turning, right when your engines of investment banking and trading were slowing down, you had this. Add that to all of the disagreements people have with his leadership style and how he goes about his business, you create a little bit of a environment that feels like there is this air of dissatisfaction mm. that has settled in on Goldman Sachs. Is that, is that accurate? Because I hear that. I'm, do you think that's fair? I mean, you're right. I would trust you more than anyone no, else. No, you're, you're, you're right that. in the thing. I'm just wondering, you know, because it just seems like Goldman Sachs, and again, I've competed against them for 30 plus years, they just win every single year. And let's get this right. I think when you look at the broader dynamics in global banking, you know, the, the, the retreat of European banks, what yeah, is happening yeah, with Credit Suisse yeah. and all of that, what that ultimately does is leave a few very strong players who continue to benefit. And the three biggies that we have, JP Morgan, Morgan yep. Stanley, Goldman Sachs, they have a big, large, growing, deep, competitive moat that ensures that they continue to do better in stuff that they're really good at, banking and trading for uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, the investment bank sites for JP Morgan and uh, Morgan Stanley as well, but also the consumer side, the wealth management side at Morgan Stanley, they are certainly benefiting there. There is this palace intrigue and there is this issue with the CEO and there is this sort of yep. growing noise that you hear out of Goldman Sachs and one does feel that there's no way that's going to turn around in a minute, even if business recovers. So it's they'll have to find a solution. I'm just looking at the stocks. Goldman Sachs, year to date stocks up 3.6%. Morgan Stanley up 5%. Trailing 12 months, Goldman Sachs up 9%. Morgan Stanley up 8%. I got so a comp chart like here. I always pull up my five-year comp chart. You I know. know you do. And Goldman Sachs, uh, over the last five years, they're the second best uh, bank of the big six, right? Only Morgan Stanley has done better over the last five years. Well, that hurts because they compete 
big time. Right. I mean, you know. That that hurts a lot, but also remember when we think about the big six, we think about Wells Fargo as the sixth, uh, sixth name in that list, right? But they're not a true, true comp to yep. Goldman Sachs. So I always like to also throw in someone like a Jeffries into the mix. Okay. And Jeffries, which is a pure play investment bank, yep. at least right now, has done extraordinarily well in the same time period. So if you add them to the list, tier three in the number seven. Not bad. Not great if you're inside Goldman Sachs, you don't like listening to the fact that you're behind Morgan Stanley, but they're getting around to the idea of A, praising their rival, praising their competitor, and yep. B, hoping to recover that lost ground. All right, Shree, thanks so much. We appreciate it. As always, Shree and Nitarajan. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I want to bring in our next guest because he traveled all the way from Newport Beach, California, David Bonson, CIO of the Bonson Group. All right, so David, I got the S&P up, I don't know, 17, 18%. I got NASDAQ up 32, 33%. I got the NASDAQ 100 up darn near 40%. Are we calling a tech bubble here? Well, a most, AI bubble, maybe? I don't know. Most certainly we're in a tech bubble if you are looking at valuations relative to history. Okay. And, and that premium to historical valuation calls for a, a mean reversion. Oh boy. And I think that that's inevitably going to happen. Right now, it's interesting. You have Apple and Microsoft below their 50-day moving average. And there are more energy names as a percentage of the index above their 200-day than, really? there, are, than there are tech names. Interesting. Well, we got WTI crude oil, $82. It's had a nice runoff of that 67 low from four or five weeks ago. So where should where are you looking at? Where are you talking to your clients about where they should be looking for some opportunities here? Well, it's funny. As I was listening to you guys talk about McDonald's, I was thinking not about the quarter pounder or the <laughs> calories, um, but the 67,000% return it has had since 1967. That's, That's what a, we're talking about. a real about. number. <clears throat> Compounded, reinvesting those dividends. McDonald's is the best real estate company yes. that happens to sell which i didn't know that pounder. until i watched the movie now yeah. i got it 
Uh, we've owned it for many, many years, and it's interesting. We bought it in the financial crisis at 50. It's now at 300. Wow. And the dividend has increased six times just as the stock has gone up six times. How important are dividends to you just in general? It's what we do. It's and, what you do. And, and okay. it's, it's not just dividends. It's the growth of dividends, so that's why I use McDonald's as an example. But I can't think of a better environment than the one we're in right now where the growth of the income is more important while you also get better stabilized business models. People are too dependent on AI, too dependent on momentum, too dependent on multiple expansion. They're the most vulnerable right now. So it's interesting. I was talking to somebody, an investor yesterday, a large cap growth guy, and he said, we were talking about Goldman Sachs and the other big public investment banks. He doesn't want to buy them because they still pay their people as if they were a partnership, right? Every time um, they have a bad year, they say, we got to pay these guys because they're the talent and it's the most important thing. When they have a good year, they're like, we have to pay these guys because they're the talent, that's the most important thing. And they never give money back to the shareholders or not as much as they should for a public company. Do you agree? Well, see, I have a name for him that is the exact same business, but a totally different outcome. It's a little investment bank called Mollis, yeah. ticker's MC, where all they do is Kenny Mollis. Is, Ken Mollis was old vice chair at UBS, started this investment bank. They Banker give up deal J back in the day. Hundred percent of free cash flow goes back to shareholders as right? dividends. And that's all they are as a deal company, unlike Goldman Sachs, which is a balance sheet company to yep. some degree. They have to maintain capital for especially that fixed income trading. Mollus, more pure advisory. So that's what we're really into. Look, we own Blackstone and Apollo. All we are is getting a piece of the management fees that they're charging. And clients don't seem to mind paying it. The results haven't done anything to keep people from paying it. And so when you own those companies, it's not balance sheet risk. Yes, they pay their people well, but it's very performance driven. I think Wall Street's one of the few meritocratic areas left, to be honest. I see that as a good thing. Well, one of the, one of the things that Goldman Sachs, that David Solomon is doing right now, he's selling you know, their big balance sheet business, the investments they've made in real estate over years because the returns have been volatile. But I was just talking to Sri Natarajan about this. He said one year they'll make $6 billion on those investments. Next year they'll lose a billion. The next year they'll lose, lose two. But then they'll make six again. So over four years, you know, they've made uh, net positive $9 billion. But since investors are so worried about quarterly or annual uh, reports, they don't care about the longer term picture. Well, I um, am a good investor then because I couldn't care less about quarterly smoothness of those things. <laughs> but with balance sheet businesses, it's not just that it's going to be volatile. You're going to evaporate capital at times. You're going to take on big losses. Dodd-Frank took away their ability to do much of yep. that. Yep. But see, that's not just a good thing because there's less risk. It's a bad thing because there's less upside. Morgan Stanley remedied it by becoming more of a fee-based wealth management business. But we believe that these Blackstones, Apollos, Alrock, they're able to take huge fees around being an asset manager in a space that has huge growth in front of it. So, David, the importance of dividends to you and your firm and your investment outlook. If I got you in a room with Tim Cook at Apple, what would you say to him? Um, I would be very respectful because how could you not be with someone right. who's created that kind of wealth? And then I would simply point out that the day and age of them saying we can do better with your money is long gone, that there must be a greater return of capital to shareholders, that they have proven that for years by holding on to hundreds of billions of dollars. Yep. Uh, they, if they had found better opportunities to deploy it, they would have deployed it. And so by keeping a yield somewhere around half of a percentage point, See? Um, See? I think I it is up. a very, very good opportunity for them to increase return on equity by paying more back to shareholders. In the meantime, they have abundant resources to still go do R&D 
and, and consumer product expansion. Uh, the great thing to do is find stocks that are misunderstood by the market, right? And uh, Simon Property Group is one you like. When I looked at that, my instant, you know, my brain said, oops, you know, commercial real estate, that must be a bad thing. Um, you think a lot of people make that mistake? I think a lot of people do. And Simon Property is a great example. It was at $50 during COVID. People said no one's ever going to the mall again. Now it's at $125 and people don't realize they have a higher occupancy rate now than they've ever had in the history of the company. Basically about 95% of their square footage across 287 high-end malls is occupied. They bought JCPenney basically for free and are now selling the old JCPenney buildings. Is that right? I didn't know that. I forgot about that. Okay. They, I mean, they paid yeah. something like $500,000 yeah, a box <laughs> when they were selling for $20 million a box. And they are selling them to Amazon to be fulfillment warehouses. They're repurposing them into hotels and, and more entertainment-oriented malls. Uh, Simon Property has a ton of unleashed value that will get developed over time. And while you wait, you're getting a 6 to 7% dividend yield that's coming straight from net operating income. And they just have a very well-run balance sheet, about 47% debt to value it's really low and to the extent they've had about five malls that have done poorly out of 287 those were non-recourse they gave them back and the cmbs people had to fight over the assets <laughs> i wonder what uh, i see, one of your books um or your most recent book i guess no free there's no free lunch 250 economic truths yeah. love the title <laughs> i was hanging out with gary Schilling as i was telling these guys yesterday and he said that's his one main takeaway there's no free lunch what do you think about these trillion dollar deficits that we're running. Um, you know, what do you think about the magic money tree that everybody seems to have bought into in government? Does that ever catch up to us? Well, it does. And the question is how it catches up. And so Japan's been in about 230% debt to GDP. And what it's done there is basically 30 years of no economic growth. So we're now at 15 years of 1.6 economic growth. We had had 70 years of over 3% economic growth before that. So the cost so far seems to be a downward trend on growth, uh, a kind of stagnation in the economy. But do I think that there's a moment in which an apocalypse comes? It's very difficult to predict that. My, my real quick comment though on the trillion dollar deficits is I don't like it when we spend five trillion during COVID. I don't like it when there's two trillion of spending in the aftermath of financial crisis. But I do understand there's a Keynesian school of thought that believes it's necessary. My problem is during peacetime and during economic expansion time when we're running one to two trillion dollar deficits. And that seems to be accepted by both sides of the aisle. And the only time anyone fights against it is when the other guy is the president. That brings it home. That yeah. brings it home. David, thanks so much for joining us. You can get back to Newport Beach. You, you know, they can't be doing work out there. The PIMCO <laughs> people, I think it's all smoke and mirrors. I don't know, because it's, maybe it's just too warm outside and you have to spend time in your air-conditioned office too perfect outside it's maybe. 75 degrees there all the time so oh, the i time. like that yeah, <laughs> exactly. no, that's, that sounds perfect to me all right david say cio at the bonson group we always appreciate getting a few minutes of his time uh, i was just saying to our producer a unique view on investing you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the tune in app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 1130 natalie wong joins us real estate reporter with bloomberg news natalie talk to us about kind of that commercial real estate market i mean if, if i'm a bank and I try to sell off some of these commercial real estate loans I have on my books. Am I finding any buyers out there? 
Thanks for having me. It's really hard for banks these days to find buyers out there, not because there aren't buyers that might want to snatch up heavily discounted loans, but because the pricing isn't there yet, right? There's a lot of liquidity out there, a lot of dry powder out there for opportunistic buyers and funds that are raised to specifically target distressed opportunities. But the problem is banks aren't ready to meet them at the price that they want to pay yet. The prices haven't necessarily fallen down far enough, although it is starting to. And this is what the story kind of talks about, which is there's been so much pressure building on the commercial real estate market and on the debt market for so long. Um, and finally, we're starting to see that banks are under more pressure to try to sell their loans, to try to add a bit more discount to their deals and find buyers so they can reduce their exposure to some of the riskier properties. We've heard a similar story with residential, with existing homes, right, Natalie? Um, uh, the the people who own them aren't willing to sell them at the discounted price that buyers are looking to pay um, in that case, because buyers are having to take a, a higher mortgage um, in, in the, in the, in the uh, retail market or in the residential market, we call this the great reset. That's what they'll call it when it actually happens. Um, what are, what is needed for the great reset to happen in, in commercial property? It's going to be a years-long process. I mean, sources that we've spoken to, brokers, investors, all say this is kind of like what happened with the malls. And I'm specifically talking about offices because that is the one sector where it's getting hit by yeah. borrowing rates and also the fundamental values are falling. Um, it's kind of similar to malls where we've seen that unfold for the past decade, right? And we're still seeing that uh, some of the better retail properties are under high demand. They're selling for good prices, but you have a lot of dead malls in places that kind of st still sit empty and it'll be a process that could be, you know, anywhere from five to 10 years. Uh, but we're starting to see that it's happening now. And um, in talking to brokers, they think that maybe heading into the third, the fourth quarter and next year, we're going to start to see more banks put up loans for sale and, you know, acquiesce to better discounts for, for potential buyers out there. So, Natalie, I guess, you know, one, <clears throat> one of the challenges for both sides of, of a trade is I don't really know what the underlying value is of commercial real estate in New York. Have we seen any big transactions that we can use to kind of mark the market? Have we seen anything really come to market in New York, for example? That's a problem is we haven't necessarily seen a lot of asset sales yet. So it's really hard for people to figure out where the values of certain properties stand right now. We've seen some cases of distress sales, but these are one-off cases. Um, one example that people are really looking at right now is you know, uh, the signature bank loans, the FDIC is selling a big chunk of commercial real estate loans. Many of them are in New York apartments, some offices, and a lot of stakeholders are looking at that to see what the mark to market might be. But the problem is, especially again for offices, people don't necessarily know where office demand and remote work, how that's going to shake out, right? We're starting to see some of the finance firms bring people back to the office four days a week, five days a week. But at the end of the day, there's still disagreements as to how that's going to shake out and what the overall um demand will be a few years from now. And that is how people write down the income for those types of loans and those types of deals. So if you don't know how that's going to shake out, it's really hard to value what those loans will be several years out from now. What are you seeing, Natalie, in terms of defaults? You know, because a lot of these, uh, a, a lot of these lenders are going to be facing that situation. And some of them are, are uh, some of the borrowers are defaulting just to try and renegotiate. We've seen that defaults have really picked up over the past 
I'd say, you know, starting this year. Um, and that's kind of been the next shoe to drop in this whole commercial real estate saga is that owners, you know, people that are, are sponsors of this debt are just looking at their property and, and looking at, you know, whether or not it's even worth trying to throw money in to um, renovate it or to invest in it long term. And we've seen even the biggest sponsors and owners like Brookfield, like PIMCO, like Blackstone, just walk away from their properties, hand back the keys. And if the biggest investors are doing this, the smaller guys are looking at them and saying, okay, it's appropriate for us to do this right now. We just don't have the money. And that's a big concern for the lenders and the banks because they didn't write down these loans with the expectation that they're going to take it over and become managers and landlords, right? So for a lot of these guys, they probably want to get ahead of any potential defaults, any potential loan maturities, and maybe sell off the loans at a slight discount instead of having to foreclose and end up having to sell the asset for distressed values down the line. That, and that, that's what really surprised me, shocked me actually, to see a, a company, a firm of the quality and the size of Brookfield walk away from something. I mean, I didn't even think that was even possible. I mean, you know, from a, like, how do I walk right. away from JP Morgan Chase where I've got a gajillions of dollars worth of deals I'm doing with these guys every year, but that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's simple economics for a lot of these bigger folks. <laughs> you know, they have distressed funds actually. They're, they've raised distressed funds to target opportunities across real estate as well for this particular cycle and you know for them it's a lot of these loans are non-recourse meaning they can walk away from it and the lender can't go after their other properties so it's easy for them to just look at the economics of the building and if they think that the demand might not come back or it might cost more than it's worth then it's just simpler to hand the keys back and to refocus their money on something that's a bit more valuable. Can they repurpose um, the buildings that they've got? I mean offices seem to be the real problem here, right? But um, you're not having, you're not seeing nearly as much of a problem in malls, surprisingly. We're just talking to an investor um, who likes Simon Properties and, and they've done pretty well. Right. Offices are the worst performing properties right now. Malls already bottomed up out a couple of years ago, so the values have already fallen. Um, hotels have stayed relatively flat, and we've seen some stress happening in apartments, but that's mostly due to a function of the interest rates, not so much that there's no demand there, right? There's a shortage of housing demand across the country. But with offices, that's really where the glut is. That's really where values have fallen 27% across the US just in the past year and set to fall more. Yep. Um, and you know, a lot of people are looking at potential ways to convert properties, but the problem today in the US is that, you know, the <laughs> regulation isn't there necessarily to allow for zoning in many cities, and it's extremely costly to repurpose a building into residential if you're able to do it due to the structural, um, you know, uh, standards of the building and yeah. whether or not it's even able to convert it. I mean, I'd so always thought about a residential conversion as well, Natalie, especially, you know, the Third Avenue corridor here in New York has a lot of office buildings that nobody wants and are impossible to convert into residential unless people all of a sudden are demanding apartments with no windows. Um, <laughs> I just I had never thought about converting to self-storage. That might be a great idea for some of these buildings. Yeah. And they haven't fared as poorly either self-storage spaces. Some people are exploring that, but that's definitely not happening, um, you know, on the masses at all, because again, of zoning, right? New York City in particular has very specific zoning about what buildings can be designated as for certain uses. And again, self-storage is a very particular type of properties um, that many of these midtown 
six 1960s to 1980s buildings just might not work out for. Hey, the 1960s to the 1980s was a pretty good era for me. So I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> Natalie, thanks so much for joining us. Natalie Wong, real estate reporter for Bloomberg News. Yeah, that's going to be a tough uh, conversion there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, like, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.